In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcast and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Scottish Blethers with Liz Lister and Helen Houston and I'm Susan Brown. Coming up in this episode, uh, Helen, what are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about a very famous animator, film animator, which very few people have heard of. (laughs) (laughs) So he's very famous in his own lunchbox. And very niche, yes. (laughs) Liz, how about you? Well, this month we celebrate the 70th birthday of a very important character in Scottish culture, Dennis the Menace. You might have heard of him. He's a comic strip character from the Beano and generations have loved him. So this week my topic is Scottish comics. By comics, I don't mean comedians, I mean comic books. Brilliant. And I am going to be talking about Scottish tea. Mm-hmm. So that should be quite good fun. But before we get stuck in, I think it's only fair that we should update you a little bit with what's going on in the Scottish Blethers world. I am going to be taking a little break for probably about six weeks, just so I can get on top of everything else that's happening in life. But Liz and Helen are going to continue with the Scottish Blethers and giving you all the best chat there is, making me jealous that I'm not around and getting involved. But <laughs> I'll be back as soon as I can be. Of course you will, Susan. Well, we're of course. going to hold the fort in the meantime and we'll continue on and it'll be different. But we might try and introduce a few new dynamics. But anyway, watch this space. But we look forward to getting Susan back again. Absolutely. So, Helen, would you like to start off with your illustrator? Yes, I will. This is a man who grew up in Stirling, of course. I've got to come back to Stirling. <laughs> Daughter of the Rock. Yes. But we lived next door when I was growing up to Mr. and Mrs. McLaren. And they had a son who lived abroad. But all we knew about their son was that he made films. Mr. McLaren, his dad, rode a horse, which was very exciting for us children next door. And he looked very grand astride his horse, wearing his long brown riding boots and his jodhpurs. He also rode a bicycle, which fascinated us as well, because he mounted the bicycle using a back step on the back wheel, rather than by putting a foot on the pedal. And Mrs. McLaren was just a typical old lady, probably not even that old when I think about it. Occasionally, Mrs. McLaren would invite my mother in to see one of Norman's films on telly. We didn't have a television then, and my mum would come back totally confused and tried to describe what she had watched. 
a lot of dots moving across a screen, or chicken legs that changed shape and danced, men fighting over a garden fence over a flower. We were confused. So who was Norman McLaren? Born in Stirling in 1914 and went on to study at the Glasgow School of Art, his early exploits in the world of film were done without a camera. He scratched and painted onto reams of film stock to create his desired effect. In 1933, he made his first real film, Seven Till Five. This was followed in 1935 by Camera Makes Whoopi, which was filled with specialist shots that were made possible due to him buying a cine Kodak camera. Both these early films received awards at the Scottish Amateur Film Festival. His unusual work soon caught the eye of the famed documentary maker John Grierson. Grierson was head of the UK General Post Office film unit at the time and was so taken with McLaren's talents that he offered him a position after he finished his studies. And just coincidentally, John Grierson had also grown up in Stirling and had attended the high school of Stirling. I'm in very good company here, <laughs> you know. Norman McLaren worked with the GPO film unit for the next three years, playing a central role in the creation of four films. His time working in this professional format helped him develop his own unique style. In 1939, he moved to North America thanks to a grant from the Guggenheim Foundation. He spent two years in New York making another four drawn-on film animated works before Grierson, who was now head of the newly founded National Film Board of Canada, brought him on board. During his time at the National Film Board of Canada, Norman McLaren put together everything from animated shots reminding Canadians to mail their Christmas cards to maps for Allied war propaganda films. In a little over a year, he had taken the animation studio so far that he was forced to recruit a team to help him. And it was during his work with the National Film Board that Norman McLaren created his most famous piece, the Oscar-winning Neighbours. It had a running time of just over eight minutes and wowed people around the world. And it carried a very strong social message. But for McLaren, he also created the film Soundtracks, by scratching the edge of the film roll, creating blobs, lines and triangles with the projector, which the projector then read as sound. One of the film's biggest fans was Pablo Picasso, who stated that it was the greatest film ever made. And today, McLaren is largely remembered for his experimental work of combining sound and video, creating several unique and groundbreaking techniques that are still used. And as well as this, Canada's National Film Board renamed its Montreal head office building in his honour. And in 2009, Norman McLaren's complete works were added to UNESCO's Memory of the World programme. The programme lists the most significant documentary pieces in the world and is testament to his Norman McLaren's massive stature in the industry. So, Norman McLaren, and I think probably... Liz and Susan, have you any thoughts on animated films? There seem to be so many nowadays, and McLaren was right at the very beginning of animation. What about what's happening now? Well, it's interesting that, you know, it's a man from Stirling that's <laughs> responsible for all this, and 
What a claim to fame with Picasso saying it was his favourite film ever. That's pretty cool. And, you know, animation, film animation, has been through so many iterations with obviously a lot of work by Disney and then on to the, the Disney Pixar studios now. And, you know, if you want a bit of just feel-good TV or a film of an evening, then you just put on one of these animated ones. And there's some great ones like, you know, Cars and, and all the, the kind of Little Mermaid ones and everything else or Finding Nemo, one of my favourites. They're great things to sit down and watch. And it's interesting to have it, the animation referred to Stirling, because normally nowadays when you think of animation in Scotland, you think of Dundee, because the University of Aberdeen, which is the smallest of all the universities in Scotland and was used to be looked down upon, now has carved out a place in the world for animation, particularly digital media, computer games, all that side of things. So Dundee is a real hub for animation. Yes, you just wonder, there must be people sitting around probably during lockdown in their bedrooms or wherever, just playing away with things the way Norman McLaren would have sat down in his house in Stirling, just playing away, scratching on film. If you just think of the old film that he didn't have a camera, so he just drew what he wanted directly onto the film. And there must be a generation now doing similar things, but obviously technologically far more advanced. I know, and it's a bit of a shame in a way, because you've got that old age, kind of the original Disney stuff, where you'd almost have a flip book, and as you flip through the book, the character would move, which, although time-consuming, there was a real art to that. And I'm not saying there's any less of an art to what we have today, but I suppose it's the old days of handwritten and hand-drawn, rather than using a computer to help with your animation and speed things up and make it a little bit easier. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. I think that what Disney was doing, and Disney was around, he was about the same time. I think he opened his studios about, what, the 1930s or something? And he was beginning to think how to do things. But this idea of just drawing one picture and then a millimetre of a difference to get the movement going, I don't know how they had the patience, actually, in both cases, Norman McLaren and the Disney animators. And without innovators like Norman McLaren, we would never have had Brave. And of course, Brave did so much for the tourist industry before Outlander took over. Yes, that's right. And what I'm fascinated about the animated films nowadays is that when you are watching a quiz show or something, they ask who starred in this and famous actresses or actors, they've got their names up in lights for voicing over the animation. And that is part of their starring roles. It's time for tea. Everything stops for tea, Susan. Tell us all about it. So, tea. Now, I know you two fair enjoy a good cup of tea. Yes. Yes. I'm not so much a tea drinker, in fact. There's only one that I've kind of been switched on to recently. But anyhow, tea in Scotland. So, they're obviously the tea industry is mainly from India, Africa and kind of China. But lesser known is that Scotland did have the start of its own tea industry, just not far from me. Got to get in there like hell and not far from me, just over the <laughs> hill at Amalri. And they started the Dalria Tea Company. And I thought, oh, that's great. I'm going to go and look this up and I'm going to talk all about them for my episode of the podcast. However, I find out that they're no longer there. 
Oh. There's maybe slight controversy in the Amory Tea Company. As so we'll move swiftly on from them and talk about other companies in Scotland that are operating. Whilst they don't make their own tea, they do actually produce hand-blended teas. And we've got differing types there. From the Isle of Tyree, that's off the west coast of Scotland, you've got Tyree Tea, and it's owned by Rhoda Meek. She's permanently based on the island, and she is a product manager for a software company, but she's also a crofter. Now, crofters in Scotland are people who have a little bit of land around about their house, and they'll grow their own veggies, and they'll probably have some animals. But crofts were kind of set up in a way that the people could never earn enough from the land to be able to just do that so they would need to go away and get second jobs so she's a product manager for a software company but she also runs her croft where she grows veg does a little bit of fishing but you know it's what a place to live the isle of tyree she has taken her inspiration for her teas from the area around about her and she's got a number on her website one of them is called nice Earl Grey, nice spelt G-N-E-I-S-S, which is a type of very hard rock that you find in Scotland. It's clever. So I thought that was quite a clever way of doing Earl Grey. And then from that, she's got the Skerryvore. And the Skerryvore is basically based on the lighthouse that's not far off there. It's off the coast. And you can take trips there with the Tyree Sea Tours in the summer. So they've got a tea named after that. Another one they've got is called the Macher. And the Macher... The real macker is a strip of land near the sea that's usually quite sandy, but in the spring and the summer gets beautiful flowers across it. So she's created a herbal infusion that's sweet and fragrant, and it's based on the macker. And what they're trying to do is help the great yellow bumblebee with some of the sales as well. And then the other one I like is the fairy berry, which is another herbal infusion. But, you know, I suppose it's talking about how you get to the islands. So I thought that was quite an interesting company to check out, the Tyree Tea Company. Another one that we've got based up in the Black Isle near Inverness is Slantiech. And this is Claire Mackay, who is a herbalist and an ethnobotanist. And she's got a passion for the traditional use of herbs in Highland culture. So what she does is she has a range of teas, but she also blends them specifically to people. So she'll have a a chat with them as to what they're looking for in terms of health benefits. And then she'll blend them specifically for that. And every blend has been created deep in the highlands, of course. And it's inspired by the indigenous use of wild plants as beverages for well-being. So it's more kind of your herbal teas and things that she's making. And she's got a colour wheel of blends that have different effects, whether you want immunity, digestion, detox, skin and beauty, relaxation and sleep. And she's also the herbalist that is used in Outlander for all of their advisors. Basically, is their expert. And she helps them make sure they've got the right plants in the right place. She's also committed to reclaiming her native tongue of her personal ancestors from Loch Carron. And she wants to learn and preserve the Gaelic names of plants and also the oral herbal tradition, which I think is fantastic, because if we don't look after it, we're going to lose it. So she's got some great teas, so you might want to check her out online. Slantia, so S-L-A with an accent, I-N-T-E-A-C-H. And that's Claire Mackay. Now, the last one on my tea, I'm going to do a total Helen here. (laughs) Obviously, I live in Pitlochry. So I have to talk about a tea blender from Pitlochry. And it would be none other than my good pal, Claire, of Hetty's Tea Room in Pitlochry. 
And what I love about her teas more than anything is, A, she started me drinking tea, and I drink her Berry-tastic baby, which is, you know, it's a fruity burst of flavour, so it's not ordinary tea, it's kind of flowery and, and citrusy tea. It's got hibiscus flowers, rosehip, orange peel, apple pieces, lemongrass, lemon verbena, and it's a very natural flavour. So that's the one that I like, and to be honest, I use her loose leaf teas to infuse into a bottle of vodka as well. It's really nice served with some tonic. <laughs> that sounds brilliant. <laughs> So uh, she's got another one called a Cozy Wee Curie, which she says is a bit like a hug from your nana. And it's chamomile flowers, rose petals, lemon balm and spearmint. She's got Little Miss Spice. She's got Hetty and the Heather. There's about 32 different blends of teas that she sells. You know, she hand blends and sells in the tea room. So that's absolutely fabulous. So ladies, in terms of tea, what do you like to drink? Well, I must confess that my, my big favourite is Earl Grey. And again, there's Scottish uh -huh. connections there. Again, with the, the city of Dundee as well. Yeah, no, I like a, a cup of Earl Grey. I like Scottish breakfast tea. However, from time to time, I do like some of the other ones. And the ones that you've been describing, Susan, I'm going to be looking them out. They sound really nice as a special tea. Yeah. It's definitely all in the marketing there. You're selling us. I'm not a fruity tea person, but you are selling me with the marketing. Oh, good. Excellent. There was a story, Liz, you've maybe heard it as well, about the minister on Mull who used to grow tea in her garden. It's one of the bus drivers that takes us across Mull to Iona used to tell the story that the minister there grew tea and produced it, obviously in very small quantities, and when Nicola Sturgeon went over to America to visit Barack Obama, I think at the time. Yes, I do remember that. Yes. She took tea from Mull to him. Well, I was going to say, I've just looked it up. The Isle of Mull Tea Company is still there and they do have their own tea. Well done. Well remembered. Apparently, it was the coach driver who was telling us this. And he said, he said, oh, I'll go and get some Isle of Mull tea. And he went in and found that it was costing per leaf more or less what he was paying per quarter pound <laughs> of your typhoo or your PG tips or something. But you have to pay for quality. Exactly. But when you go past her house, her manse on the road, the outside what she has as plant pots are teapots. And so she's got little bedding plants and things inside teapots just decorating her gateposts. Well, I think that comes under the category of your word of last week, Helen. Affy fan oh, Yes, <laughs> yes, that's right. And of course, let's not forget the Scottish connection with tea, the major one, Sir Thomas Lipton. Of yeah. course, yes. He was the first to introduce advertising and marketing. Uh-huh. And, you know, I suppose everybody remembers the kind of yellow packaging for Lipton's tea with the red bit on it. Oh, that's right. That's how I always remember his, his tea bags. And of course, the other Scottish connection is that you talked about Claire of Hetty's blending her yes. tea. Well, the tea blender, Arthur Bell in Perth, he immediately thought, oh, I'm blending different flavours of tea to get the flavour of tea that people like, individual people like. You could do the same with the different types of whisky. And so he started blending whiskey. And that's where the blended whiskey came from rather than the straight from the distillery whiskey. You're a font of knowledge, Helen. I need to be getting into your brain. 
I'm just thinking back to if there was a flitting. Now, you know, if oh, you know, yes. Scottish word there, a flitting, mm-hmm. a removal when you move from one house to another, you would use tea chests. So I was thinking of the Lipton, you know, they'd be stamped on the side and there'd still be tea left in the bottom. But tea chests were used to pack up all your crystal and pottery and all your goods before you loaded them on for a flitting. And then sometime after you'd actually arrived at your new house, the tea chest actually served as your table for some time. <laughs> yes, till you get everything unpacked. Right. Oh man, time to go and put the kettle on. Absolutely. Wait, 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 wait just a wee minute. Let me finish off before you all go rushing for the kettles. Just a little minute. I mean, I have so enjoyed researching this one because it's been bringing back so many memories from my childhood. It's something I remember with great affection, which children today are largely missing out on, is the weekly comic. You couldn't wait to get your hands on your favourite publication. And if you were Affy Posh or Affy Fan Touche, you got it delivered. Helen, I bet you got yours delivered. We had ours delivered, yes. I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) If you were like me, you saved up your pocket money and you bought it at your local newsagents. So you were weaned on Twinkle and Bimbo. And then for girls, there was Bunty. Now, I don't know about you, Susan, but Helen, do you remember those cutouts where you used to dress up the dolls with the wee the dresses with the wee flaps that folded over and you had to be so careful actually it was a terrific skill that you learned of how to cut out carefully because they were tiny and these wee flaps yeah absolutely one wrong move and they'd gone you could have that a nude bunty oh my goodness (laughs) gracious anyway then you went from bunty to judy and i seem to remember a lot of ponies and bally and judy so probably right up your street hell And then you had Mandy and Diana. And of course, when you hit your teenage years, Jackie. Oh, yes. Now, Susan, have you ever heard of Jackie, the teenage Yes, there's a few of these I remember. Good, uh, good. Certainly Jackie and Twinkle. Yep. Yes, I remember all of those. Jackie was for teenagers, teenage girls. And it was a mix of fashion, beauty tips, gossip, short stories. It was comic strips illustrated with line drawings or posed photographs, which often involved a reader's true life experience, usually dealing with either romance or family issues. So ladies, do you remember the centre pages? They usually contained a pull-out poster of a popular band oh, or a film star. Of course star. they did, and you should put them on your bedroom wall. Exactly. Davy Jones of the Monkeys was my particular favourite, but do you remember... David Cassidy of the Partridge oh, family. yes. Well, he came on a tour in 1972 and that was the best ever selling edition of Jackie. And they were flying off the shelves that week. So then, of course, there was the Kathy and Claire problem page. Now, as you might expect, most of the 400 plus letters that they received from their teenage readers each week focused on sex related issues. But most of those that actually came to print tended to focus on less controversial issues. My parents don't understand me. My friend's jealous of my new haircut. What should I do? However, in 1974, the National Health Service in Scotland made the contraceptive pill free on prescription to girls under the age of 16 without having to advise their parents. And this was a major social step change and coincided with the editor of Jackie at the time being Nina Mishkoff. Now, you will know Nina Mishkoff, Susan. You have heard of her, have you? Is she not an actress? She's the TV critic. You know, she's on a lot of reality shows and whatever. 
and she's known for her acerbic wit and her caustic tongue, very outspoken. And so Jackie was dragged into the 20th century when they introduced a Dear Doctor column, which covered what were termed as below-the-waist issues. (laughs) It's so beautifully put, isn't it? (laughs) Nevertheless, competition from the newer, more sexual and fashion-orientated teenage magazines was relentless. And this meant that sales declined until the comic folded in 1993. Oh, the end of an age of innocence. Meanwhile, the boys weren't forgotten. Commando, and it's nothing to do with the kilt, Oh, I loved Commando. (laughs) The Hotspur launched in 1933 and published weekly as a text-based story paper, except during World War II, when a result of paper rationing, it published fortnightly, alternating with another well-known name, The Wizard. Oh, yes. In 1959, it relaunched as New Hotspur in what we now recognise as the comic format. A sequence of panels containing cartoon images and text usually delivered using devices such as speech balloons and with expressions as kapow, splat, whoosh, wham, (laughs) that we know so well. These balloons always had sort of scattergun bursts around them. It wasn't just a a balloon, a nice rounded balloon, was it? It was a zigzag line. Yeah, shouting at you. Along with other titles of this era, including The Rover and The Skipper, These comic books were referred to as the Big Five and they were all the creations of the publishing house DC Thompson of Dundee. To this day, DC Thompson remains synonymous with comics, not just in Scotland, but all over the world. It's them that we have to thank for perhaps the most famous of them all, the Beano and the Dandy, both of them legends in the world of comics. The Dandy launched first in 1937 and was the home of Desperate Dan, a Wild West character reputed to be the world's strongest man. He was famous for eating cow pies, an enormous meat pie with the horns left sticking out. But times change and the comics target market migrated to other media, television, videos, DVDs, and then gaming and social and digital media. And so sales inevitably fell. The printed edition of The Dandy folded in 2012, and even a digital edition went the same way a year later. However, Desperate Dan is immortalised in a statue on the high street in Dundee, where he's he's still to be seen striding out with his dog, Dog, D-A-W-G. It's a fabulous statue. I love that statue. It is. Much photographed. The Beano was launched shortly after the Dandy in 1938 and is still going strong today. Although it doesn't sell the two million weekly copies it did at its height in the 1950s, but it is the UK's longest-running weekly comic. The Beano introduced us to characters such as the Bash Street Kids, Minnie the Minks, Lord Snooty and Billy Whiz. And like many long-running comic strips, the characters remain frozen in the era that they were created. So the Bash Street Kids still attend Bash Street School in Beano Town, where they sit at wooden desks with inkwells and are taught by teachers who wear mortarboards and gowns. That's wonderful memories. <laughs> In 1994, when it was announced that the kids were to be overhauled to appeal to a more modern, politically correct audience, there were protests, petitions, publicity stunts, even death threats. But it all turned out to be a hoax, and the characters remain the same as they always did. Arguably, the most famous of all comic strip characters also appeared in the Beano, and it's his birthday we're celebrating this month. Dennis the Menace, a spin-off from the Bass Street Kids. 
His appearance in 1951 made Seals of the Vino sore. He's your stereotypic, badly behaved schoolboy who enjoys causing chaos and mayhem. He's dressed in a distinctive red and black striped jersey. He's got messy hair and knobbly knees. And he's a loner who prefers the company of his faithful dog, Nasher. It's been said that while in most children's books, a bad child gets made good, Dennis never gets any better. And this might be part of his appeal. Although for a while, the title of the comic did get changed to Dennis and Nasher over concerns that he was becoming too menacing or might be construed as a bully. Happy birthday, Dennis, survivor of a much-loved phenomenon, the comic. And I haven't even touched on characters from the cartoon strips of the newspapers, like the Sunday Post and the Daily Record, who featured the Bruins, Ur Willie, Lobby Dosser, to name but a few. So definitely a subject for a future episode. Yeah, that's brought back lovely memories of all these comics. I had to share the comics with my sisters, you see, so that's why we had ours delivered. One comic for three. As they say in Scotland, I write. I get. <laughs> the other comics that came out, not out of the DC Thompson stable, but there were Girl and Eagle. And these were more glossy comics, a bit more grown up. And they had stories, comic strips that continued from week to week. It was like serials. They were good as well. I think the Bunty and the Judy were quite like that, didn't they? They had serials yeah. going on. I remember getting the Christmas annuals. Oh, yes. As a kid, we used to get them every year, whether it was Judy or it was the Beano. Oh, I can't remember what else we got. God, we had loads of annuals and you'd sit yeah. and read them all. And then as I get into eight, nine, well, I've got two brothers. And at the time, all of my cousins were boys. So we used to go on holiday down the West Coast to Caradale and you'd go to the little shop on the pier and you'd buy the commando comics and you'd sit and read the, the commando comics. Like one was called O'Banion and they'd talk about the limeys and the yanks and all the things that you can't talk about these days. But these were all mentioned in the commando. And I bought one for my partner's son just a couple of years ago, just as something a little bit different for him to try because he wasn't really reading much. And he really thoroughly enjoyed reading the commando. So these comics are definitely, I would say, timeless. And you've just reminded me, I need to go and buy a Beano annual for my nephew and niece. Yep, they survive through the annuals. And as you say, you make an important point there, Susan. For many children, it was a way of learning to read because they were accessible. It was easy to read and they were interesting. So, you know, people should knock them. They were a genre. And of course, DC Thompson and Dundee, my dad's family, originated in Dundee and DC Thompson was such a large employer. My father's cousin worked in the printing shop of the factory but you know the great claim to fame was that his wife Jean was an, a writer for Jackie magazine and just imagine my excitement when one episode I opened it and the story was about Alan Haxton which was my dad's cousin. What a claim to fame for a teenager. <laughs> That always matches living next door to Norman McLaren's mummy and daddy. <laughs> and of course, there's one character you forgot that was around the same time as Dennis the Menace. You got Beryl the Peril. Oh, yes. And Beryl the Peril was always cool with her orange hair. And did she not wear stripy outfits as she well? She wore stripy yeah, she outfits had and she wore... She had red and black yeah. because they fought in one episode, they fought over the red and black jersey <laughs> as to who it belonged to. <laughs> and this was another feature of the comics, which is still true to this day, although they're now appearing in, in annuals and in cartoon strips and newspapers, that there were so many offshoots 
you know, a character would be popular in the Bass Street Kids and would develop in their own story like Dennis the Menace. And, you know, to look at the family tree, my goodness, it's so complicated. I suppose now the equivalent, adult equivalent, are the soaps on television running for years and they're kind of a comic strip with actors and the family trees are very interesting there as well. Ah, but it's not as much fun as the comics. And of course, the one that I'm sure will get talked about at some point is the Bruins. And they're in the Sunday Post every week and they've got their own page and it's all about the the Bruins family who go up to their button bin and everything else. It's great. Yeah, and they are known all over the world. I mean, many of these comic characters will only be relevant to people who grew up with them in Scotland. But the Bruins and Ur Willie in particular are known all over the world. And I think one of the things that you talked about, the annuals, there was a time when you had to get your annual as soon as it hit the shelf or else they were sold out very, very quickly. And I think maybe it's the same nowadays that people are still looking for these annuals. And going back to what you said, Liz and Susan, it gets people reading. Do you think Harry Potter kind of took over from the annuals and the, and the comic strips, getting children reading? I suppose in those days, the print runs were limited. So it's not like today where if, if the annual sold, they could run off another few hundred thousand copies. So you're absolutely right. I remember that the, the worst fate would be that if you were you didn't get your annual because it had run out, goodness, scarred for life. <laughs> Maybe that's what happened. <laughs> well, we better not go on any further in there and talk about our word of the week. Indeed, who wants to start with theirs? Well, following on from the comics, you know, they used words that only appeared in comics, things like, yeah, beezer, yeah, beauty. You know, if something was superlative, it was, yeah, beezer. I like that one. I still use yeah, beezer every now and again. And I think it can be something with a negative effect as well. If you hurt yourself or, or stab your finger or something, you, oh, yeah, beezer. Well, I'm going back to my mother watching Norman McLaren's animated films and just not having a clue because his animations, you can actually find them on YouTube. So if anybody is interested, they are absolutely fascinating. And if you think of when they were made, the technique and the skill is unbelievable. So you can find them on YouTube, just YouTube Norman McLaren. But she came back thinking it was all dots and lines and things. And there's sort of squiggly lines and squinty lines and Everything had gone squeegee, just skew whiff, which just means they were not going straight. And of course, we've got the squinty bridge in Glasgow, which doesn't go yes. straight. And the squiggly bridge in Glasgow, the footbridge is the squiggly bridge because it goes squiggly across, not squinty. It's not even straight squint, it's squiggly. Glaswegians <laughs> <laughs> like to give their structures fancy names. Susan. Mine is related to tea for once. Uh, I've related it to my topic and it's a tea jenny. And a tea jenny is somebody that loves drinking lots of tea. Lovely. I think I'm a tea jenny. Well, ladies, we're going to miss you, Susan. Hurry back. I hope that our listeners will continue to support Helen and I as we take it forward over the next few weeks until Susan rejoins us. I'm sure everybody will be there. Thanks very much, ladies. Bye, Bye for now. Bye. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and 